All right. Um, book of Deuteronomy is the last book of what group of books in the Bible? Books of Moses and Yeah, the books of Moses, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is Greek for five, five of the law. <laughs> um, Deuteratuk is the Bible. Book. <laughs> so, um, this was our this is our outline we've been looking at. Next week we finish Deuteronomy and do a good part of Joshua at the same time. So this is the last full week on Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy has a series of addresses by Moses, speeches that he gives to the people. Where were they when he gave the speeches? They were just about to cross the river Jordan. Yeah, they were just east of Jericho across the Jordan River. Um, and this is the last chance Moses is going to have to talk to them because what's going to happen to him pretty soon? He's going to be dead. Yeah, he's going to be called called home. Which, sad part to that. We won't go into that. Um, each of these addresses, he, he he's really telling what's on his heart. And... and What's on his heart primarily is he's worried about these people falling away from God. Um, what was the one sin that was probably the biggest temptation to these people? Idolatry. Yeah, idolatry. It talks about that a lot in, in, in these addresses. Um, when they go into the land and they conquer the people, what do they have to be careful about? Yeah, not taking up the idol worship of those people we're following. Which later history proves exactly what they did. It was just, um, I mean, the book of Deuteronomy has a lot of pessimistic statements in it, but later history shows that it was exactly right. Whereas Moses has seen these people for the last 40 years, he had a good reason to be pessimistic. So we are now in the second address of Moses. We're going to finish that, and we'll also do the third address today. And we'll do the renewal of the covenant and the exhortations of the people to Joshua and to the priests. At least we will if we cover all the material. <laughs> we'll see how far we get, but I'm hoping to do close to that. So then we'll look at the outline of the second address, which we're still on. This is the biggest one. The bulk of the book is, is really just this one single address. Um, he he re- reviewed the Ten Commandments. Where else in the Bible are the Ten Commandments found? Exodus. Exodus, that's right. Exodus chapter 20. Um, and then we talked about how you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then we talked about idols. A whole chapter warning about idols. And then he, um, he reviewed how God had taken care of them through the wilderness and that was to encourage them to obey God. Um, And he warned them against thinking that they were going into the land because they were so great. They were going into the land because God was punishing the people of the land. Um, And more encouraging to obey God. Then we're in the section called Various Laws. (laughs) And it would be impossible to outline this part because Moses just jumps around. Um, there are a few topics we can, we can kind of pull various passages from different places and put them together and say, okay, there's one topic. But um, it's, it's pretty much miscellaneous. 
Um, not, that, that, that's not to try to detract from it. I mean, they're very useful laws. It's just that I don't know of any way to outline it. So chapter 21, um, there's a strange thing in the first half of the chapter. What's the, what's the occasion for this strange thing I'm talking about? Yeah, someone's murdered, they find a dead body, and what else? They don't know who did it, that's right. Um, obviously, if you can find out who did it, that person is going to be put to death. But if you can't find out who did it, they have this ceremony where they, have to ha- they actually have to make a sacrifice. Who does the sacrificing? Yeah, the elders of the nearest city. Yeah, you measure to the nearest city um, and I say sacrifice, and, and I understand why um, why Mary Lee is talking about the priests because they're the ones that do that. But um, it doesn't call it a sacrifice. But this heifer dies because of this of this murder that has shed blood on the ground and hasn't been atoned for. Then. Um, there's a section about marrying a, a, a woman that you have captured in battle. And basically it's a way of protecting her rights. Um, and then there's a section about a man that has more than one wife. And what is he not allowed to do in his will? Right. He has to, he has to recognize the rights of the oldest son. It doesn't matter whether... It's the oldest son of his favorite wife or the oldest son of his unfavorite. Um, of course, that's a sad commentary on on the, the, that sort of a marriage, a polygamous marriage, but that it did happen. We've seen it. And then in verse 18, there's a, there is another commandment, which if you any of you who are parents... Um, We'll have to understand how difficult this would be to do. What is it saying? Yeah. Yeah, now obviously this is not we're not talking about a kid that's ten or or thirteen years old. He's, he's a drummer. Yeah, he's he's gotten up into years where he's not and he won't listen to his parents anymore. And he's just causing trouble. And um, so they bring him to the elders of the city. In verse 20 they say, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then what do they do? (laughs) Oh my. Well, one of the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and your mother. And so this is... This is simply the, the, the punishment for a, a continual violation of that commandment. It's not like he just messed up once. This, this young man has simply rebelled completely against his parents. Um, I'll mention something that you might be a little bit surprised about in verse 20. This is the only mention in all of Moses' writings of either glutton or drunkard. Um, now we do have we do have people getting drunk. We had Noah getting drunk, but it's the only suggestion that 
that this is a sin in, in the law of Moses. There is a book in the Old Testament that mentions those two a lot. What book is that? Proverbs. Yeah, Proverbs. Yeah, and it, 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 of course, comes much later. Then in verses 22 and 23, and again, these are just miscellaneous, but in verses 22 and 23, um, that it considers the case where a man is worthy of death and he's put on a tree, hanging on, on a tree. And um, I'll just mention that um, in those days, they normally did not execute a person that way. They would kill the person first and then they would hang them up as a warning to other evildoers. The body was being hung up there. But in verse 23, there's a commandment. And what is that commandment? Not to leave them on the tree. Yes. Yeah. Not to leave them on the tree. This, person, this is an offense to God because the man is a, a, a sinner. He's being punished for his sin. It's an offense to God to leave him out so you can't leave him overnight. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, where does that where does that come back up again? Yeah. And I believe it's in the book of Galatians that Paul specifically quotes this passage. That he he, he was um, he took the curse on himself because um, he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. All right, um, in chapter 22, again, just miscellaneous, um, there's some commands here that I think we had in the book of Leviticus, which is basically you, you have to treat your, uh, your neighbor, your fellow countryman, fairly. And, and in this case, you find one of his animals loose. Uh, you need to take it back to him, or if you don't know who owns it, hang on till, till he comes for it. Um, so just just mutual obligations of, of citizens one to another. In verse five, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things sins is abomination to the Lord your God. Again, that was a new commandment that I don't think we've had anywhere else in the law. Um, laws about this is a strange one about the taking the. <coughs> baby birds without taking the mother. But there, there's another law similar to that uh, in con- uh, about being concerned about animals, which is you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. Um, and there, there may be one or two others in the, in the law that are concerned about animals, animal welfare. Um, in verses 9 through 12, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Um, now, if these laws were still applying today, we would be violating them a lot because probably most every one of us has clothing on us that uh, is a mixture of, of two kinds of material. But this was this law was was there to teach the people about purity and holiness and separateness to God. Um, just as he doesn't want the people themselves to be mixed with with uh, the idolaters around them, so they're they're to symbolize that in in how they plant, how they um, and even the, the garments they wear. <coughs> Starting in verse thirteen, we've got a number of laws 
Oh, actually, all the way to the end of the chapter, they all have to do with marriage uh, and violations against marriage and um, and sexual sins. Um, let me back up and look at a general principle in the law. When there, when we find punishments in the law, the punishments in the law are are generally designed to try to make something right. You, you've committed a, a crime, you've made it wrong, and the punishment is designed to make it right. So, for example, if you steal from somebody, what is the punishment? You give back what you stole. Yeah, plus an additional. So you, you basically give back twice what you stole. In some cases, you give back more than that. Uh, we won't go into those details. But basically... You give back the extra to make up for the fact that you shouldn't have stolen in the first place. So that's the fundamental principle of the punishments in the law. Try to make make things right. Undo the wrong that's been done. Now, okay, so now if you murder somebody, what's the punishment for that? Death. You can't make it right. And there are a number of crimes in the law that you cannot make right. And the only thing to do is to is to put you to death. So if you if you go worship idols, um, you can't make that right. God uh, does not have any way to make that right. You just simply get put to death. Now, with these sexual sins, the same principle still applies, and and um, this helps explain some of the things you may find surprising uh, in, in these punishments. Um, Look in verse 28. This is the one I think you'd find the most surprising. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered. Now, what, I mean, the word for this is rape. I mean, this what this guy's doing. Then the man who lay with her shall give the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Now, there's another place in the law where that this where it is consensual. In this case, it was not consensual. It was a, it was a forcible thing. In the case where it's consensual, it's got the exact same consequence. The man has to marry the the, the girl. Now, to in today's world, rape is looked at in, from a different angle. It's not looked at from from this standpoint. It's looked at more of a of an act of violence against a person and is punished from that standpoint. This is dealing with the fact that the man did not have the right to have sex with this woman because she was not his wife. That's what it's looking at. This is a sin of fornication. Whether it's forcible or whether it's consensual, it's still a sin of fornication. He did not have the right to be having sex with her because he's not married to her. So how do you make it right? You get married to her. That's that's the solution. Now, what if she's already engaged to somebody else? Then you can't do it because you have you have done something that you cannot make right. And so, um, in verse twenty-five, the man gets put to death. She she was engaged to someone else. That that is the sin of adultery. It's the same sin as if she was already married to, to the, the man. Um, 
I mentioned this some time ago, and, and, I don't, and it, I don't know that it was understood very well, but I need to explain again what adultery is in the Bible. Um, and I, I copied down a, um, the definition in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia summarizes it very well. On the topic of adultery, it says, In Scripture, it designates sexual intercourse of a man, whether married or unmarried, with a married woman. Now, we don't usually think about it that way. We usually think about adultery being two people having sex, at least one of them is married, but not to the other person. But that's not the Bible definition. The Bible definition has to do with the fact that the woman belongs to another man. And so whoever is having sex with her is violating the rights of that other man. Um, and, and so he's committing uh, adultery. And what was the punishment for adultery? Yeah, for both parties. For both parties. Um, the man and the woman. The man because he's violating the rights uh, of, of the husband of that woman. The woman because she's violating her covenant with her husband. She's supposed to be faithful to her husband. Now, to us today, it seems unfair that adultery would be one-sided like that because um, if her husband has sex with an unmarried woman, he has not committed adultery. He's committed fornication. It's a sin, but it's not the same as adultery. He's had sex with an unmarried woman. The punishment for him is get married to the woman. Of course, then he has two wives if he was already married, but they did that back then and it wasn't, it wasn't wrong. And so that it's not an equal relationship. Um, and, and it remains that way even in the New Testament. It's not an equal relationship then either. Um, and uh, in, in our society, that's pretty much not understood at all. Um, I want to come back to this in two more chapters. And why is it so unfair for the woman? The woman, the woman gets back from being gets to gets to gets to um, marry. Well, no, no, no. The, wait a minute. The only time the woman gets death is if she's violating her covenant with her husband. Right. But her husband did not make a covenant with her that he would not take another woman. Um, he's allowed to have more than one wife. She's not allowed to have more than one husband. Now, if you want to ask why that's unfair. Well, that's the only way I I mean the Bible doesn't go into detail trying to explain this. It just assumes this is the way it is. But we have to understand marriage is designed to be a picture of something, a, a picture of something spiritual. Marriage is designed to be a picture of a, the relationship of God's people to God. Um and in that picture, which one does the wife represent? She represents God's people. Which one does the husband represent? Yeah, he represents God. Um, now that's not an equal relationship. I mean, the relationship between God and His people is not an equal relationship. And so marriage is a picture of something that of itself is not an equal relationship. Um, now, whether God has more than you know other people that He marries, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, people talk about how you know are there creatures of other planets, all this. Um, the Bible doesn't doesn't 
go into that. But it's, it's very clear that when God's people go after idols, they're committing spiritual adultery. And, but there's no way that God can commit spiritual adultery. That, and that's never suggested. It just it cannot happen. Um, when God's people do this, they are called adulteresses. And it's in the book of James. The, the King James ha, has a different version on it, or, and the New King James. But if you use the, uh, the New American Standard Version in the book of James, James calls the people of God who go after other things adulteresses, feminine. Um, and you think about that. Well, why would he call men adulteresses? Because they're part of the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. That's why he calls them that. <laughs> um. What about the first example that you went to? The first law of men that rapes the woman. What does that represent? And the woman has to make the man, have, man has to marry. Well, it doesn't represent anything spiritual, certainly, because it was a sin. I mean, you're not not representing anything spiritual. But what it means is that he committed an act which should only happen between a husband and a wife. And the way to solve it is marry her. So now you have a husband and a wife. That's the way to solve the problem. Um, Now... Before I leave this, I want to go back into more detail on this story from verses 13 to, um, to 21. Here you have a case where a man has married a woman. And, and you have to, to understand this story, you have to understand that it's expected this woman is a virgin. Um, again, our modern society do, doesn't understand that. It even considers the word virgin to be an insult. Uh, young people sometimes will insult each other by calling them that. Um, which is an, an you know, just turning everything upside down. But in those days, that was completely expected. Um, after he marries her, he decides she wasn't a virgin. Now, what that means, what that means in this context is she's pregnant, and that's what he's saying. She was pregnant before we got married, and so then they have evidence. I'm not going to go into that, but if they prove to him that. In fact, she was a virgin when the, when he got married. Then, in verse 18, the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father, because he public def, publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. Now keep that in mind. We're going to be looking at divorce in two more chapters, and this is an important principle here. He's a falsely accused her of sexual infidelity and he's been wrong, and so now he can't divorce her. So watch what happens when we get to chapter 24. Um, all right, so that's that's everything I wanted on that chapter. Any questions before we move on? All right. Um, chapter 23 is, um, again, miscellaneous, but it starts out with people that you're not allowed to bring into the assembly of, of the people. Um, descendants of Moab or Ammon, for example. Um, and then warning, um, again, a bunch of other things are warning against. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned to interest. Um, in the book of Leviticus, this command was specifically you can't charge interest to a poor person. And I'm not sure but what that might be the case here as well. The implication is why is he borrowing money if he's not poor, I think. 
Um, and then in verses 24 and 25, an interesting uh, allowance. If you're going to your neighbor's vineyard, you're allowed to pick grapes and eat them, even though it's not your vineyard. But what aren't you allowed to do? Yeah, that's right. You can't bring a, a bag and go stuffing it with your neighbor's grapes. So you can eat if you know if you're hungry. You can eat. And there's a case in the New Testament where Jesus' disciples were doing something like that. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, they were walking into a grain field, and as they were walking along, they were picking the the grain, rubbing it in their hands because you have to rub the chaff off, and then eating the, this grain. And they got in trouble for what? Stealing grain? Working on the Sabbath? Yeah. It was perfectly all right for them to take the grain. They weren't putting it in a basket or anything. What they were, what what the the Pharisees didn't like is the fact they were doing it on the Sabbath day. Now, okay, it's not chapter twenty-four. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies and took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you should not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. This is the only passage in the law that specifically allows divorce. And this was the passage that the Pharisees were quoting when they came to Jesus saying, is it lawful to divorce a woman for any cause? And they quote from this, this passage. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews had two different interpretations on this passage. Um, there, were, there were two great famous um, rabbis that, that were dead by the time of Jesus, um, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Um, and I think Hillel was the one that was right about it. Um, but I could be wrong. Because um, I'll tell you what's, what's the truth on the matter. And that is that the word... See, the, the, the argument was on the word indecency. What does it mean? Hillel said it means a sexual sin. Shammai said, no, no, it means anything. Like, you know, if she burns the toast. Yeah, that, that was a famous example. If she burns the toast, you can, you can send her out. But the word... And I, I can get you scholars that will tell you this. The word indecency literally means nakedness or sexual sin. Nakedness is often used as a euphemism for, for sexual behavior. He is finding something wrong sexually in her, which means the same thing we were looking at two chapters ago. She's not a virgin when they get married. Or she has cheated on him after they've been married. Um, and although if he can prove she did, she would be put to death. There may be cases where he knows she, what she's doing, but he really doesn't have any proof because you can't execute someone if you don't have witnesses. And so when they asked Jesus, Jesus gave the very answer that Hillel was telling these people. Jesus said, whoever puts away his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. Um, and he can, and he causes her to commit adultery because she's going to get married again. Um, so the the law really wasn't changing from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I'll, I'll I'll mention one more thing that I'd like you to just keep in 
in mind on this, and that is that there is no passage that gives the wife the right to divorce her husband if he commits adultery. And again, that's one of these things that seems unfair. And, and in the church today, it's just commonly believed that the, the rules are equal. If the husband can divorce his wife for adultery, then the wife can, adul- uh, can divorce the husband for adultery. There is no passage, Old or New Testament, that gives, that gives the, man, the, the, the wife that right. Um, you'll say, well, that doesn't seem fair. And I'll say, I agree, doesn't seem fair. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says about it. Um, and furthermore, if you look in history for the last 2,000 years, if you read what commentators say about it, you'll find that up until about 100 years ago, give or take, a, you know, I don't know how many, but up until about 100 years ago, everybody taught exactly what I'm telling you today. Back in the 1800s and prior to that, the commentators did not think that the wife could divorce her husband for his adultery. They did not think that. This is only something that's come in in the 20th century and it's come in because of our society has just gone crazy over sexual sin and over, over divorce and all this. It's just... Um, we're living in, in pretty sinful times. Thoughts? Questions? Alright. Um, this forgiveness, but it doesn't always you know, take away the damage that's been done from sin. Well, that's right. Yes. Um, today, of course, we don't have the death penalty for adultery. And certainly, a person can be forgiven for it if they truly repent. But you're correct; it doesn't undo the damage. Yeah, and the damage is terrible. <laughs> Just it sure is. Um, I'm just looking. We've got various laws, but I'm not gonna have time to cover them all. So. Well, at the end of chapter 24, um, if you are reaping your harvest and you forgot a sheaf in the field, what are you supposed to do? What's the point of that? Yeah, the, the poor people, they can have it. And now we saw this, the same thing in the book of Leviticus. You can't, you're not supposed to uh, chop down the grain all the way to the corners of your field, leave the corners for the... Uh, the ail- for the poor people, basically. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's called, when they when they take the food, it's called gleaning. And there's a very famous story in the Bible of someone that did gleaning. Ruth. Ruth. That's right. She did gleaning. Um, in fact, we're going to come up to Ruth again in chapter 25 here. Um, uh, verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he was threshing. I mentioned that one. But in verse 5, it talks about a man who, who dies. He's married. He dies, but he doesn't have any children. What's to be done in that case? His brother is to marry that woman. And then the firstborn son inherits the father's name, which, which of course would mean his property and car- carrying on the, the family uh, <coughs> Family's obligations. Um, 
And the, the, the name isn't given here, but the name of this marriage is called Levira marriage. Um, I'm not sure why, but it has, has the word Levi in it. Levira marriage is the technical term for it. And the, it, it considers a case where the, guy, where the brother might not want to do the marrying, which we saw that back in Genesis, um, Tamar was supposed to be given to her husband's, her dead husband's brother, and, and she wasn't. And, and it was understood back then as, as a wrong. Then in chapter 26, it, it talks about the offering of first fruits. Now, the offering of first fruits we find in the book of Leviticus. Um, I'm pretty sure it was in Leviticus. Certainly, it's been before this. But here, it gives a, a more elaborate ceremony for it. And you take these first fruits and you say in verse 3, I declare this day to the, Lord, to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. I think that's very interesting. You know, just These fruits are evidence that God has brought us into our land. And then in verse 5 you say, My father was a wandering Aramean and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, inflicted us, and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and he heard us. And, and so it's kind of a recitation of their history, all with this offering of the first fruits. Um, in verse 12, you might have been a little bit surprised when you read this about the tithing that it mentioned something about it. Did anyone notice something odd about this? The third year. Yeah, the third year. That was the thing that was strange. It. There's in in various books of the law. There's different rules about the uh, tithing. It appears that there were two separate tithes, and the second tithe had two different purposes. So the, that actually makes three tithes. And the, and the the Jews of later years in Jesus' day, they talked about three different tithes, but but it was only done uh, only two any only two of them were ever done the same year together. And the first tithe. And I may have this backwards, but I'm pretty sure the first tithe was not the tithe for the Levites. The first tithe was one that you would tithe, you'd take a tenth of all your things, and then you would take the, all the, the things you've tithed to Jerusalem later in later years, or to Jerusalem where the temple was, at the feast days. And you would use that food to eat while you're at the feast. And, and perhaps you know use it in some of the offerings and all. So it was a tithe, but it was kind of a tithe for yourself in, in, in religious service. The second tithe then would be whatever was left after the first tithe, you'd tithe again. So uh, you math wizards will know that that means you tithe a total of 19%, not 20%. <laughs> um, so you tithe again, and that second tithe is given to the Levites. And we've seen that before, where they, they would get that. But on the third year, here in Deuteronomy 26, on the third year, that tithe was used for more than just the Levites. That tithe was used for the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. It also helped the poor people. Explain that again. I'm... Don't do this to me, Tracy. I can't. Well, well, you said something about tithe. Why do you want to tie twice? Because they're for two different purposes. 
The first tithe is to get food so you can eat when you go to the Passover feast, for example. The second tithe you give to the Levites. It's a, to- it's a totally different tithe. Well, no, the second one, you, get, you give that to the Levites, but every third year, instead of giving it just to the Levite, you give it to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. So it's used for more than just a Levite in that third year. Don't they have a tithe that they take care of the, well, not the church really, but their, but their the, the temple? temple? It wasn't called a tithe. Um, it was called the temple tax. And, they, and that was separate in addition to the tithes was the temple tax. Uh, but that's not in the book. It's, that's not in the law. They instituted that later on. Yeah. Other question? Are the Levites being the priests and the musicians? The Levites were the tribe that the priests came from. The priests were a subcategory of the Levites. Um, in later years, the Levites were the musicians and the singers at the temple. They were the guards at the temple. Um, in in the book of Exodus, the Levite's job was to carry the tabernacle around in the wilderness, which was a big job because it was a big tent. Uh, but of course, once they got in the land, they didn't move it. They didn't move the tabernacle anymore, so the Levite's jobs changed. So, yeah, that's a good question. Can't, not to, I know you have a deadline, but um, if the Levites were the First it was at Shechem, then it was at Shiloh, yes. And, and then eventually it's at Jerusalem. Yeah, and we'll get to that later on in the, in the reading. So now we come to chapter 27, which is, um, this is the, a, a separate address. Um, let me see how we put this. It's the third address of Moses, chapters 27 and 28. And he covers an interesting ceremony. They're, going to do, they're only going to do this ceremony one time. Where are they going to do this ceremony? The mountains of Ebal and Gerizim, which are they're right next to each other. And so half the tribes will get up on the, on the side of one mountain, half the tribes on the side of the other mountain. I don't know who was in the middle to hear it, but... Um, Maybe they only had certain people. I don't. I don't know. I just. I don't know the exact arrangement. But um, on the one side, they would be shouting out the curses that God was putting on anybody that breaks the law, and from the other side, they would be shouting out the blessings that God would be putting on people who keep the law. And in chapter twenty-seven, all it has are the curses. Did anyone count how many curses there were? There's 12. Interesting enough. 12 curses. So they had 12 tribes, 12 curses. Um, then in chapter 28, they have a bunch of blessings. I don't know whether the, whether the blessings in chapter 28 are the counterpart to the curses because there's also curses in chapter 28. So either, either chapter 28 has the blessings or we don't have the blessings. Only <laughs> We all have the curses. Um, but in chapter 28... Moses goes into detail about the good things that are going to happen to you if you obey, the bad things that will happen to you if you disobey. And man, he, of course, he spends a lot more time on the bad things. 
And the good thing is very nice. I mean, you think about it. Blessed shall be your offspring. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And, um, the, he'll cause your enemies to run away and, and send blessings on your barn. and, and Just wonderful things. But when he gets to the curses, it's just, it's just a terrible list. Uh, all these things are going to happen, you know, pestilence and, and um, fever and all that, and the withholding the rain so your, la- your ground turns into powder and it's like iron. And, um, but then it gets even worse if they don't repent at that point. Then, then we start getting enemies coming in and they're eating up all the land. And this is basically a, a summary of the rest of the Old Testament because the, the people repeatedly refused to obey God and nations repeatedly came in and, and ate up everything they had and took them captive and all this. Um, and then he goes to even, even greater lengths when we're talking about the siege warfare and how it'll get so bad that they'll even be eating their own children because they're, they're starving to death. And this happened more than once in the later history of the Jews. Um, uh, Really sad. And he keeps going like that and how after they get scattered they'll they'll still not find any resting place in these nations. And just terrible. But um, he still later on he still gives the hope that they, even at that point they could repent and, and come back, but it's it's really um, all of these things are really a prophecy of of what's going to happen to these people for disobeying. Yeah, they, yeah. I don't know where it says it. Says it somewhere. They were worse off than all the other nations. Israel. Well, that is right. Yeah, when god had given them greater blessings so he he required more from them and gave them greater punishment at the end no none of the times have they been utterly destroyed they've been just scattered among the nations all right um chapters 29 and 30 is a um a covenant this is our outline doesn't consider this to be a um an address it calls it the renewal of the covenant and so he gets the people to once again agree that they will obey God. And then he warns them about what's going to happen in the future. He, Moses can't get off this subject, what's going to happen in the future. He, he just knows these people. He's so worried about them. And so in chapter 30, he talks about how, you know, when everything I've told you comes, comes to pass on you, remember this and repent and come back, and then God will bring you back. A wonderful promise, and and when it happens later on in the book of, in the Old Testament, book of Ezra, for example, um, it's amazing. It's just unheard of that a nation could be taken captive and gone for seventy years and then come back again. But that's that's this is what Moses told him to do: repent, and then you'll get to come back. Um, so in verse fifteen. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. So in other words, pick what you want. Um, And then in chapter 31, we have Moses' last words. And um, he again predicts what's going to happen. And then he has words for Joshua because Joshua is going to be the one to replace him. 
In verse 9 it says, He wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So they would put the law with the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if they put it inside, but they might, and they might have, but it was going to be go around with that with the Ark. Um, now some parts of this book had to be written by someone after Moses died uh, because the last chapter has his death in it. And so at some point there was an editor went through and, and added some things, and that may be what happened in verse 9 here when the editor might have told us that he wrote it down. He spells it with Joshua. I have no idea. <laughs> um, see, I, it could have been many, many years later. I don't know. I just don't know when it was done. But we have another commandment in verse 10 that's important. At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, what are they supposed to do? Read the law to the people. Of course, he was reading it out loud. So every seven years, the people are supposed to hear the whole law again. Um, I don't think they kept that command like they didn't keep a lot of commands, but if they had, it would have, would have worked would have a lot better for them. So he commissions Joshua, and then God has Moses write the words of a song, and next week we'll look at the song of Moses. This is not the first song. We had the first song of Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. But this is his last song. Um, and it's intended to um, be a reminder to the people when they've forgotten everything else. They've forgotten the law and everything else. They'll still remember this song and, the, and that will bring their hearts back again. Yeah, Tracy. I was just wondering, we know on um, Saturday morning one king who was eight years old and he became king, and they found him in the book of the book. They found him yeah, that was Josiah. Yeah. Do you know when they lost it? No, um, no, it, it, they never did. They didn't notice when they lost it. <laughs> that's how it is. Yeah, that's how it is. They just kind of quit caring. And I mean, if you look at the history before Josiah, I mean, they were worshiping idols. It was just terrible. They didn't care about the law. And it got so bad that they did, they had forgotten there was a law. And they got surprised when they found that. All right, next week, finish the Pentateuch and start Joshua.